life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. Hello everyone, I'm Jan Murray and welcome to Life After That. Today we want to welcome Wanda Whaley from Kansas. She is here to share her story and that of her late husband Clint who passed away from the disease ALS. Welcome Wanda and thank you for coming. Well thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity. I think it's important that people that don't have family members that have been diagnosed with ALS understand. So if they ever come across that in the future, maybe they can help give support to the people who need it, both patient and the caregivers. So, Well, I'm so glad that you're willing to share. And uh, I wanted to remind the listeners who might not know what ALS is. That stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And in Europe, they call it motor neuron disease. In addition to that, some people relate it to the ice bucket challenge. So that is the disease that we're talking about. Um, It's 100% fatal, although some do live longer than others, and some are going on ventilators and live longer. But um, that is the disease that we're talking about and how it impacts families. And Wanda has been willing to share her and her husband Clint's story. Uh, Clint was 59 years old when he was diagnosed And he passed away, I believe she said, 15 months later at the age of 60. Um, Can you tell us something about your life with Clint prior to diagnosis, you know, before you even knew ALS existed? Well, we were introduced when we were, I was 13 years old. The day, the night I met him, he was playing men's fast pitch softball and I told my friend that night that I was going to marry that guy when I was 13. And of course my mom and dad wouldn't let me date at that time. But a year later we got to hang out some. And and when I was 17 years old, we ended up getting married a couple months after I graduated high school. And uh, we had almost 42 years of happily married life together. We had three kids and, um, We had a great, I mean, of course we have our, everybody has their little problems, but for the most part, we had a great life and we loved each other very much. So I believe you told Um, me before that he was, he was a a cowboy and he was very happy with his outdoor work. So tell me, what did he do on a day-to-day basis? What was his health like and what led up to needing medical intervention? He was, um, he was a strong guy. He could build anything. He could solve any problem. He he loved to hunt, and uh, he had a fence building company that he uh, started <clears throat> after he retired from a job he'd had for thirty five years. And he was at the top of his game. He loved what he was doing, and uh, he just he was thriving. We were happy. We had looked forward to this time in our lives for all of our lives. The kids were gone. You know, we had some time to do what we wanted to. We, we also started a, a log furniture building company and just getting going with that. That's something that we did together. We built our own log house. 
which I still live in now, but just him and I did it. And, uh, it was a great time. And, uh, he started, oh, in the spring of 2017, he was tired a lot and he kept having leg cramps. And one day he said, gosh, I must be getting old. His, he used to, he used to carry 200 pounds of dog feed on his shoulders, no problem. And he said, one day he just said, uh, I'm, I'm getting weak. He said, it's hard for me to even lift 50 pound bag of dog food. Well, I just didn't think much about it, <clears throat> but he just didn't feel right. And, uh, he went to the doctor and they did some tests and couldn't really find anything. And then he got to where he couldn't hold a pencil or couldn't write very well. And the chiropractor actually suggested that maybe he had car carpal tunnel. So we went to a neurologist in uh, July of 2017. And um, they did the ENG on it's where they stick the needles in you and shoot shocks through your body to see how it responds and stuff. And the neurologist uh, determined that he did have carpal tunnel and he had, uh, oh, while we were there, uh, he said, uh, you've got carpal tunnel, but the good thing is you don't have ALS, which that was never even on our radar. You know, we never had even heard of that or we never had even thought that he might have that. And, uh, okay. He doesn't have ALS. Great. We went, he went and had the surgery, uh, the first part of August of 2017 and he recovered okay but he still was having trouble picking up things uh, a hammer even which he needed for his his business and um, he still just wasn't quite getting back to what he thought he should be and he went back to the oh a neurologist cert, neurological surgeon did the carpal tunnel surgery and we went back for a checkup and when we did uh, his hands were maybe a little better, but there wasn't a big improvement. And he had fallen a couple times, which was so totally out of character for him. He, that was not anything that he did. He was agile and strong and he, he didn't fall, but just for no reason he would fall. And, um, <clears throat> as we had an appointment to go to the, surgeon to have his hands checked again I made a list of just little odd things that just didn't seem quite right and I I can't even remember what the whole list said but I think there was 17 things on it oh wow and um <clears throat> we went to the surgeon and he says well maybe you have a pinched nerve in your back and so he ordered an MRI well, our family doctor had said that maybe he should go back to the original neurologist that had done the ENG that had told us he didn't have ALS. He said, maybe you should go back and just check with him again. So that was, uh, oh, the, probably the 1st of September. And the quickest we could get in to see that guy was December 31st. And that was just, 
that was three months away. And, you know, each day I could see things getting worse and worse subtly. And we were put on an emergency uh, list for, you know, if there was a cancellation that they would call us. Well, it just so happened that the day after we had gone to the neurosurgery, we got a call saying that um, he could see the other neurologist the next day. So we, it was in Wichita. And so we went to Wichita again the next day. And the, the very same neurologist that had told him three months or no, about mm, six weeks prior that he didn't have ALS looked at him and he says, I think you have ALS. And I said, wait a minute. I said, that's impossible. Six weeks ago, you said there's no way he had ALS. And I said, then you walk in this room and take a look at him. And then that's what you think. He said, well, things have changed. He had started having the fisticulations, you know, like when your eyelids um, flutter. Yeah. These were all over his body. Yeah. Every second of every minute of the day, something was moving. His arms, his legs, his face. There was something on him fluttering all the time. And the neurologist said, well, let's do a full body ENG. Well, I don't know how many of your listeners have had those. They aren't particularly pleasant, but we got that scheduled for the next, the following week. And of course, we were devastated when we walked out just hearing those words. And uh, we went back the next week. And the whole time he's doing the test, he sounds very encouraging. Like, uh, you know, that wasn't what he had. And then he got done. He came back in the room. And we were expecting, you know, per- positive results. of, Or not positive results, but we were expecting favorable results. Right. From his attitude that he'd had while he was taken or given the test. And, uh the doctor says, well, he says, I want you to go to KU Med Center and get a second opinion. But he says, I am almost certain he has ALS. Those are words you never want to hear. And uh, took us another month, which would, it was Halloween. That was on October 6th. On Halloween, we finally got into the KU Med Center, and we went up there. Of course, he had to go through the whole body ENG again, and they determined that, yes, he did have ALS. And went on to explain that we would go to the clinic up there every three to four months, and you sat there in a room, and they bring doctors, they bring physical work, uh, physical therapists, social, uh, social services, uh, every kind of uh, practice that you might need, they bring to you. So it could be a four to six hour day of just sitting in a doctor's office. They say, bring snacks, you know, bring everything that you bring entertainment, bring puzzles, bring whatever you want, because you're going to be there a while. 
Well, luckily our daughter, uh, who is a psychologist, uh, she lives up in that area. So she went with us, which I was very thankful for. She could talk doctor language <laughs> and, uh, she could be there to take notes and ask questions. Cause when you're there and scared to death, you don't remember what the doctors tell you. So I would suggest anybody that's going through that, take a third person with you. Right. And, um, so we did that and, uh, they, did a breathing test and determined that uh, what his breathing level was because your diaphragm gets weak and you're not able to expel the carbon dioxide. They immediately got him a Trilogy, which is a BiPAP machine that helps you expel your carbon dioxide because that's something when your uh, diaphragm and everything gets the muscles in there get weak you're just not able to do that. And so that helps you with that. So he got a trilogy right off the bat and uh, they weren't encouraging at all, but there is no reason to be encouraging because there's no really much hope. They put him on a, uh, oh gosh, Rylazol ry ry is what it was. And they told him it could possibly give him three to six months more to live. And when you're first diagnosed, you're willing to do anything to get that three to six months. Yes. And my daughters um, did a lot of research and they, uh, I don't know if I should say this or not. You can edit it if you need to. They um, found the Deanna protocol which is a series of supplements, I guess. And they, it was quite expensive, but they bought that for their dad for Christmas, for his first, for the, for his Christmas present. They wanted to try it. He deteriorated so quickly that by Christmas, he couldn't even open a medicine bottle, okay. much less, give it to himself and you had to do that every 30 minutes and so he tried it he couldn't do it I was I still had to work <laughs> I had in you know I was the one with the insurance and I have wonderful bosses and they were totally aware of the situation and gave me permission to leave at the drop of a hat no questions asked. All I had to do was walk out the door, which I'm very thankful for. And um, I'm only five to 10 minutes away. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I was able to come home whenever I needed to, which allowed me to still work. I would get him positioned in the morning he loved to watch westerns on tv i'd turn on the western channel and it would stay on till i got home at noon and uh, anyway that's that's how he spent his days because by january he was walking with a walker everywhere by april he needed a wheelchair of course it takes a long time to get wheelchairs that are fitted for you and that's something that the AL, 
ALS clinic at KU Med Center did do was they ordered all that stuff. But it by the time Medicare gets it approved and um, it it gets built for use to your specific or to your physical specifications, it takes three to four months. He didn't have that time before he needed it. So I bought a used hover round wheelchair that, you know, he could tool around the house and, you know, it did, it did okay for a while. Um, one thing I will say that he could not feed himself, his hands just, he lost the use of his hands. His mind was always working. His mind was trying to solve problems before they became problems. I mean, he he could tell that it was going to happen. He developed um, some eating utensils that he had my dad make uh, that worked for two weeks. And then he wasn't able to use it again. He was always designing something in his head for other people to do <laughs> that would help him. And it was very good ideas, but it progressed so fast that it worked great for the first two or three days. And then it just went downhill so fast. After two weeks, he wasn't able to use those things. And, and uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about problem solving and he had some success, but it just, you'd get that taken care of and then you'd be too far gone to use it anymore. So um, that was, that was one thing that kept him occupied, kept his mind occupied. And uh, he, his brother would come once a week and he would tell him how to build continue to build the log furniture so that gave him something to do once a week he would go out to the shop and sit in his wheelchair and he got to boss everybody around for a while till um probably june he couldn't talk anymore it was getting very hard to understand him that was the hardest thing I agree. because they have a machine called uh we well our brand was a toby toby mm -hmm. Box, and uh you read it it's like a computer screen that you read with your eyes and it speaks for you stephen hawking i think had something similar to that and i'm sure most people have seen seen that on TV, but he had that and he with when it was him and me, we could communicate somewhat that way. <clears throat> he never was a very good speller. So sometimes <laughs> that didn't work too well. But uh you know, I got the boards and I pointed to letters and we did that. But um when I you know he didn't he didn't have a lot of company. And I mean, family, um, our kids and stuff, grandkids were great. And uh, my family would come, but by the time he got something typed out to respond to something in the conversation, 
we're three subjects down the road, you know, it just yeah. took yeah. very long. And so then he just kind of quit trying and it was sad to see that. It was so, so, so sad to have him look at me with pleading eyes and try to tell me something. And I could not understand what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relate to that. And it was just heartbreaking. Yeah. Because we tried. We tried so hard and it just didn't work. But by August, he had the machine and that helped some. Um, so we're looking at a year in October since diagnosis and he was just getting weaker and weaker at that time. He, I had to use the Hoyer lift, um, to lift him in and out of his wheelchair. Um, we did have a really good piece of equipment called a, I think it's called a sit to stand, um, uh, that I could pull him up on. And I had pads that would fold behind his bottom so he could lean on. And he developed a shower that I could roll that thing up on. Because our house, uh, even though we have good doorways and everything, our bathrooms weren't handicap accessible. So he designed in his head a, a shower that I could roll the sit to stand up on and give him a shower uh, with a you know, just a handheld shower. And, uh, you know, that was pretty smart for him to, to come up with that, to put down in our basement. And, uh, that worked for a couple months. And then by Christmas, he was getting, getting pretty weak. Um, January, we, the last place he went was like January 6th, and. 17 and we our granddaughter played volleyball club volleyball and he went to her ball, ball game and that was the last place he went oh I will tell you um that summer in June he would our grandkids are very very important to us and that was our entertainment is going to their ball games and stuff and it got to where I couldn't get him in and out of a car with a, with a lift, with anything. It was impossible. And one day I just informed him that I was making an executive decision. I'm buying a van. I said, you've worked hard all of your life. And I want you to enjoy everything that you can for the time you have left. And he was the man of the house. He made he made the decisions and, you know, we, we worked together, but he prided himself on being a good, good man, good provider. And I took that decision out of his hands and I just said, Hey, I'm going to go do it. So my dad and I went down and we found a good handicapped van. And that was probably the best decision I made um, because it allowed us to go to ball games and, uh, everything. And I'm very glad. And I would recommend that for anybody. I, they're expensive and you can't resell them for what the dealerships want. I mean, it's worth it. That's all I can say. Um, 
it allowed him to be able to still enjoy what little bit of life he had. And I can that, agree with that. We had a van actually um, after someone else who had a van and his wife passed away from ALS uh -huh. and we could not afford a van, but this man gave us his van. Oh, wow. And um, it made the biggest difference in our lives. Um, and then once my bill was no longer able to use that, I pass it on to another, I signed it sure. over to another ALS family who still uses it to this day. So that's great. Yeah. If you can get your hands on a van, whether you borrow it or whatever, it can change, change the life for at least for a little while. It can help their, their prospect on life. I mean, just, you know, it's tiring. No matter what you do, they're going to be tired, but you know, you can be tired sitting in front of the TV yeah. or you can be tired out enjoying your family and doing what they're doing and watching. And uh, it's, it's so worth it. And um, what would you thinking back? What would you, what is something you could pinpoint that was the hardest thing to adjust to? You mentioned the voice and I think there's so many hard things with ALS, but losing his voice really affected me. It affected him. But is that what you would say was the worst thing to lose? And yes. I would definitely would. Um, you know, I can feed him. I could get him through the door in the wheelchair because he lost he lost the ability to even move his wheelchair with his finger. He could not do anything. Right. Um, I would wake up 15 to 20 times a night just to move his foot or scratch his nose or anything I mean I was the only caregiver we didn't have any caregivers my mom uh he would text me once in a while I mean when you're sitting in a house by yourself for six hours a day and you have ALS on your mind I don't care who you are anxiety is gonna it's going to get to you. Yeah. yeah. And he would text me with his eyes. Oh, the Toby machine would, he could text something on it and it would go to my phone and he'd say, I need help. Or could you call your mom? And my mom was very willing to come out and just sit and watch uh, swamp people with him. I'm, she said I, she'd never watched so many, uh, on television shows in her life, but she learned to watch Gunsmoke and Swamp People and, uh, you know, all those shows that he liked. They might not say a word, but just having somebody out here was good for him. And, you know, as far as the bathroom and stuff, if he needed me, I could come home and get him to the bathroom. Uh, like I said, I had great boss that would allow me to do that. One time he texted me. And he says, I need help. I walked out of the office and what had happened was his arm had fallen off of the side of the wheelchair, just off of the armrest. And he couldn't get it up and his arm was going to sleep. And just yeah. think how sad that is yeah. that you don't even have the strength to pull your arm back up. And so 
that's all I did was come home and pull his arm back up on the wheelchair. And he was fine. It's just, you can't do anything. Um, I will say that uh, in August, I he was losing his voice. We had not had a talk about what he wanted particularly. I thought I knew, but I wasn't sure. And uh, I didn't know how to bring that subject up. He wasn't one that liked to talk about that. He he believed in God. He, I mean, he had that faith, but he wasn't in any hurry to die. And uh, I didn't know how he felt about having the feeding tube, uh, having respirator. We went, soon he was, as he was diagnosed, we went to the lawyer. We had the paperwork you know, DNR, all that kind of stuff for both of us. We didn't have that. Um, that was easy. But then when it came to, do you want a respirator? Do you want that? I didn't know how to bring that subject up. And I knew of a lady that worked for hospice who we were casual friends and she was a nurse. And I called her he wasn't close to needing hospice. I mean, he'd lost the ability to do everything, but death wasn't, you know, on the front burner that right. at that time. But, and I knew he wasn't going to want me to call hospice. Finally, I just said, Hey, this is for me. They can come and help um, give us ideas of how to make things easier. And, it's for me. It's not for you. It's just for me. And then he allowed it. But if he, if I would have said it's, you know, I'm getting nervous. We need to call him. I had, if it was for him, he wasn't ready to do it, but he had, he did allow it because I convinced him that it was, I needed help. And so they came in and I did find out that he did not want to be on a respirator. He did not want a feeding tube. And this sounds, maybe it sounds cruel to some people, but I was thankful for that because he wasn't living. He wasn't who he was. He wasn't happy. I mean, he never complained. He was sad and some and but he wasn't who he wanted to be and I'm I was glad that he made that decision I you know it's everybody's personal decision but That's for him uh I I was glad that he made that decision and uh the lady that came in her name was Kate she was the best nurse person that could ever be a hospice nurse. Uh, we became great friends and he liked her. Her husband was a cowboy. They had, they knew some of the same people from uh, rodeo days and they had a lot to talk about as best he could. They would sit and watch 
gun smoke together sometimes. Um, they had a, a really great relationship and she could talk to him about things that for some reason it was really hard for me to talk to him about. And uh, we had a very, very good um experience with hospice. I've heard horror stories, but that was not our thing. And I'm thankful that uh, we did have them. Uh, she first started coming once a week. And then, you know, as time went on, she'd come twice a week. And the last week she came every day, but uh, they, it was a great experience for us. Um, it, it was for us as well. Um to wrap this episode up, Wanda will be joining us for the next episode as well to talk about after ALS. But um, Wanda, what is something that you would want uh, our listeners to know about the journey? What is the overall thought you want them to know? Perhaps if they know someone with ALS, you know, how could they help, for instance, uh, help a family when they're going through it? I know in our experience, we had some help sometimes. But for the most part, it was me and my daughter. My son had already moved on. It was just me and a 15-year-old and dad at home seven days a week. And I think I went three and a half years with no respite care at all for myself. Um, so what would you say? Uh, your journey otherwise sounds very similar to mine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what would you want people to know about people who are going through ALS and what they might could do to ease that burden? Um, in my case, the pay, uh, my husband, uh, he didn't really want anybody else. Um, my granddaughter was, uh, studying to be a nurse and he would allow her to come and he, she stayed with him on Wednesdays just for company. As far as doing the personal services that he required, he didn't want anybody but me doing that. And, um, I think, it was hard to even go to the, okay, one time I had to go get my oil changed in my car and my grandkids came, our grandkids came and stayed with him. I sat up there at that place and bawled all day long because I was so scared to leave him, but I needed that. I needed to get away to go get my oil changed. They had a good time. They had wheelchair races while I was there. <laughs> Um, and that's a good memory that, you know, they'll always have, but I would say just be there to listen. Um, I really, I had friends that were willing to do whatever they could, but he didn't want anybody doing anything. Uh, yeah. he wanted me and other than being totally exhausted, um, I'm glad I was there. Uh, I would have liked to have somebody to come shave him because <laughs> I did not like that job. And I was always scared I was going to hurt him. And uh, it never looked good. But, you know, he didn't care. So um, that was probably my least favorite job was shaving him. But um, I don't know. It's it's a hard, hard disease. And I wouldn't wish it off on anybody. Um, his last, his last days were, were hard. He got to where he's, he was 
um, we had to give him morphine and every day it got doubled for the last week and his anxiety level was high and, uh, I don't know. I'm thankful. Like I said, I'm thankful for hospice and, uh, I, I love him. I miss him, but I would not want him back like for him to have to live like that anymore. So um, and it might be hard for some others to understand, but hopefully uh, through this season, we can help other people understand what an ALS family is going through on a day-to-day basis. So in our next episode, Wanda's going to share what she's done to carry on after Clint's passing. And it's something unique, not just to help herself, but to also help other um, cows or caretakers of those with ALS. So please join us for the next episode of Life After That.